Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello and welcome to The Book Album. Hello und herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. So excited to have you all here today. So excited to review Hand Upon the Waters by William Faulkner. This is the third short story in Night's Gambit, which is a collection of detective fiction first published after Faulkner won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And there's a newer edition that came out, which is edited by John N. Duval. And Duval has done a masterwork with this edition, in my opinion. He has restored a lot of these stories to versions which Faulkner would have agreed with a little bit more than the original published versions, meaning that the editors on a lot of these different magazines in which the short stories were first published changed a significant amount of the short stories. They cut out thousands of words in some of them, um, changed some of the language or mnemonic devices that Faulkner uses, and uh, Duval here has used original or earlier manuscripts to restore those versions. He goes as far as to say uh, in the introduction that some of the short stories are boulderized, quote unquote, um, which I find fascinating and just so uh, showcasing um, for the work that he put in um, to restore these different pieces. This short story, Hand Upon the Waters, was first published in 1949 in the Saturday Evening Post. Duval writes in his introduction that um, Faulkner loved to publish short stories in the Saturday Evening Post, as did, I think, many other writers during this time period, but Faulkner in particular because they paid the most at $1,000 per story, and that is indeed what this story was bought for in 1949. It is one of 18 pieces that Faulkner published in this magazine, by the way, between 1930 and 1957. So it runs right in the middle of a really big publishing push for Faulkner in the post at this time. Originally, this short story, like Smoke, which is one of the uh, earlier stories we reviewed on this mini-series. I forgot to mention, this is a mini-series. <laughs> We're reviewing all six detective fiction stories and making a page for uh, these episodes so they're all kind of together. I just did the photos and everything today, so I'm pretty excited to put that up on the website. That'll be linked on the homepage at relevanceofliterature.com. Anyway, originally, like Smoke, another short story in this anthology, which we've already reviewed, this particular piece, Hand Upon the Waters, was written with a quite lengthy exposition. This is very, very typical Faulkner, especially at this time, um, and this exposition was heavily edited and condensed, which is, again, kind of also a typical edit of Faulkner when you think of his relationship with the publishers at this time and also with the readers. What they wanted to read 
do do people really want to read short stories with like this really slow and long exposition? I don't know, but the expositions were trimmed, which makes me think that they were also somewhat catering to the audience at that time. The introduction to this particular piece, Hand Upon the Waters, is on pages XXII through pages XXIV. So all of the information about the Saturday Evening Post that I summarized will be on that first page, XXII, and I'm going to read now from the very end of this description, um, the second to last paragraph, which goes from pages XXIII to XXIV. And this is in Night's Gambit, edited by John Duval. Quote, no copy edited typescript survives. However, comparing the published version and the later Virginia typescript indicates a heavy editorial hand that removed many of Faulkner's descriptions of character and setting in favor of a more plot-driven presentation. This is particularly evident in the story's opening, which reduces Faulkner's first two paragraphs into one, cutting 168 words to 62 in order to take the reader to first dialogue more quickly. This less is more kind of editing removes a number of lushly rendered details about the river bottom and its flora and fauna. Whoever edited the story wanted the minimum of descriptive details and seemed always to be asking of each sentence, does this push the plot forward? So again, from these quotes from the introduction of this newer edition of Night's Gambit, we can tell that there's this kind of plot-driven mentality that the editor has that wasn't necessarily the main goal, it seems like, of Faulkner's, at least from these earlier um, editions of it. Um, and you could tell from the beginning of the paragraph how much detail and how much Duval had to kind of figure out about Faulkner and the way that his pieces were submitted and edited over time. I mentioned this in a previous episode, but... Faulkner wrote his name and his hometown, Oxford, Mississippi, on drafts which he intended to be submitted for publication. And so if earlier um, or even later typescripts exist, then they were not the sort of Faulkner-approved typescripts. These were just other drafts. Um, and so that's, you know, there's these kind of clues in this hunt <laughs> that Duval went on, and it seems to have taken him to many, many different archives and things of this nature, um, which again kind of adds, I think, to the allure of an edition like this because it really brings like an, authentic an authenticity to it, but also um, a love and a care to it. Um, that's just, I haven't really read um, an edition like this with so much research on the back end and he talks about, in other places in the introduction, about quote-unquote de-editing the short stories, and I found this process just so fascinating that he had to kind of go back and make these short stories more original and more Faulknerian, um, because these editors at the magazines he originally published the stories in had different intentions for them. Let's talk about the short story's format and also its plot. So this short story is divided into four sections. There's number one, which is the exposition, number two, which is 
what I would call like the Inquisition or something's wrong. <laughs> uh, number three, which is the real investigation and the high point of the plot. And number four, which is the extra legal justice slash the results of the confrontation that happens in part three. So this short story, Hand Upon the Waters, it's title comes from a quote in the Bible, which is in Exodus in the Old Testament, which I'll read. It's Exodus 7, 19, and I'm going to read two versions. I'll read the King James Version, which is the original where the title is kept, and then I'll also read the New International Version. So let's start with the King James, um, Exodus 7, 19. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Take thy rod, and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, and upon their ponds, and upon all their pools of water, that they may become blood, and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So, as you might be able to gather from the context of this verse, this is during the ten plagues of Egypt, where... God is sending all of these horrible happenings onto Egypt and they're kind of coming in these waves, you know, there's like the classic locusts and so on and so forth. And so it's a very, I find it to be a very powerful and evocative verse, especially between this connection of water and blood, which are two uh, very large and sort of consistent symbols throughout the Bible. Water, of course, symbolizing purity, baptism. There's a lot about living water and how baptism should come from living water. Um, and also just the interconnectedness of water to life, water to the earth. Um, you know, Jesus being able to walk on water, Moses parting the water. So there's just a lot to do with water in the Bible. It's a very central theme and a very central symbol. And also blood, you know, the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and, um, you know, blood being in some ways, you know, associated with sacrifice, for example. And I could go on and on, but blood is also a huge symbol. So I find it amazing and very, very uh, telling about this short story that blood and water here are contrasted on the one hand, but also interconnected. And that part where um, there's this list of like all of these sources of water that they may become blood. And there's this, you know, that's one of the sort of plagues is that the water is blood now. So I'll read the um, NIV version now of this passage. I just find that when reading the Bible or other religious texts, it's often great if you're reading the translation. I'm not going to read this in Greek or Hebrew, <laughs> um, you know, to look at different versions. So this is 719, the New International Version. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn into blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and stone. So you can see here that most notably the word upon is changed to over. 
not upon the streams and canals, not hand upon the waters, it's hand over the waters, which is kind of a different meaning in the sense of, at least in English, hand upon the waters is like touching the waters, right? Like interacting with it. Whereas over is there's a distance between what's happening, the agent, if you will, and the water. So I find that to be really, really interesting that in some translations, there's a very, I think, clear distance between what's happening with the water and the agent. In terms of the plot of this particular short story, it is relatively straightforward, I would say, from a murder mystery perspective. There's a sort of hermit-like figure named Jelani Grinup who is found dead and or murdered on the fishing line of his own property. Um, and he has a ward of sorts who is deaf and has trouble communicating due to lack of education, etc. And this ward is deeply upset, you know, going um, to great lengths to signal what's going on. Um, and Gavin Stevens, the detective, the Dupont figure of this uh, series, I'll call it, um, comes in and he immediately knows from the scene, from the inquest, that something is afoot. And he has several guesses, there's several sort of mm, suspect kind of figures that come up throughout the, sh the, the short story and um, he ends up realizing that yes, indeed, one of these figures had convinced Lonnie Grinup to sign himself up for an insurance which um, this man would be the benefactor for in the case that Lonnie Grinup died early. And, um, you know, no surprises there, there was some foul play. There's kind of this big event, which I'll read later at the end, where there's like, you know, gunshots and all of this. So it's kind of, a, I would say, a pretty typical, like, uh, progression for a murder mystery. I love the way that it's written, though. I think that the slowness of it, the calculation of it, follows the main character, Gavin Stevens, and his um, arc of thought throughout this process very, very well. And it's not, like, easy to read. Like, this is a quite um, dense, kind of language and there's moments where I as a reader was figuring out all of the different things that Gavin Stevens was thinking along with him you know it wasn't where a, a, a short story where the information was fed to me I really had to discover it on my own and that's something that I really appreciate about Faulkner's writing in general so I wanted to read the exposition a little bit here, which was again re-lengthened a la Faulkner's original intentions. This is pages 44 and 45 of the edition. The river was low at mid-July level. The current ran brown and rich as chocolate among the willows where the moccasins lay in the sun and where the sun struck the path between the willows and the jungle itself, it was dusty. But inland, along the gum and cypress and holly and cane, the ground was still wet, dark, because here it never got completely dry. Here you walked carefully indeed, watching your feet. But the two men followed the path, 
though not to avoid the snakes, not because there was something other than even water moccasins abroad in the bottom on this hot summer morning, because they did not know this yet. They followed the path because the walking was better in it, and because it led where they wished to go. One of them carried a clean gunny sack. It had been washed, and it looked as if it had been ironed too. The other was a boy less than twenty years old by his face. He ought to have been catching fish in this water, he said. If he happened to feel like fishing, the one with the sack said. Him and Joe run that line when Ronnie feels like it, not when fish are biting. They'll be on that line anyway, the youth said. I don't reckon Lonnie cares who takes them off for him. They went on in single file, following the path, the youth who was in front, glancing downward from time to time. A blue crane crossed the river, flying deliberately, its long leads trailing. Presently, they came in sight of their destination. The bank rose to a cleared point, almost like a headland. A point cleared apparently not so much by design and any labor as found comparatively free of undergrowth and further cleared by subsequent usage. In it sat a conical hut of such a harlequin appearance as to be almost camouflaged, generally round with a pointed roof, built partly of mildewed canvas and odd-shaped boards and partly of oil tins hammered out flat. A section of stovepipe projected crazily above it, and the two windows in view were set at different levels, sashless. No sash made to any angle would have fit them. There was a meager woodpile and an axe, and a bunch of cane poles leaned against it. Then they saw, on the earth before the open door, a dozen or so short lengths of cord just cut from a spool nearby and a rusted can half full of heavy fish hooks, some of which had been already bent into the short cords. But there was nobody there, unquote. So that was page 44 and 45. Again, that's part of this very lengthy ex uh, exposition that I've been talking about this whole time. So you can kind of see the meandering kind of prose where we're coming upon the scene, but this, we don't see all of it at once, right? We're seeing little pieces at once. And that's something really beautiful about this particular piece, in my opinion, um, where they're walking the path and, you know, there's those kind of typical ideas about why they're being careful, why they're walking on the path, you know, perhaps the snakes, perhaps the weather, but no, it's because they are perhaps somewhat unfamiliar with the terrain, but they need to go somewhere and this path is taking them where they need to go. There's kind of this like practicality about their motions and their movements, which says a lot about their characters. Gavin Stevens, the county attorney and the lawyer of sorts, that kind of is the main character, I would say, of all these short stories, shows up first in part two during the inquest, and he immediately knows by the story that these two men discuss that there's something wrong, and we end up learning later in the story, which I won't spoil, what sort of gave him the tip that this death was not a natural one. In the third part, there's a further exploration of one of the main suspects, Tyler Ballenbaugh, um, and eventually a confrontation between Tyler and Gavin. And um, I'll read a little bit. This is page 60. Now he's going to shoot. 
Stevens thought, and he sprang. For an instant, he had the illusion of watching himself springing, reflected somehow by the rain or by the light from the river in the air above Boyd Ballenbaugh's head. Then he knew that it was not him, that figure which had no tongue and needed none, dropping with its arms extended and its body curved and shaped with silent and deadly purpose toward Boyd Ballenbaugh, which had been waiting nine days now for Lonnie Grinup to come home. He was in the tree, Stevens thought. Then the pistol glared. He saw the flash, but he heard no sound, unquote. So this is kind of a difficult passage to spring on you all, I know. So bear with me here, but Gavin Stevens confronts, right, Tyler and his brother Boyd, and they are deciding to get into a conflict because Stevens has found them out. There's kind of no way forward from here other than them going to jail. And so um, they're like, we know how we can prevent <laughs> going to jail. We can kill Stevens. Um, and so there's that ward that I mentioned near the beginning of the episode that Lonnie Grinup had, and the ward springs out from near the area where they are and deflects the bullet from Gavin Stevens. So in that sense, saves his life. Um, and then in part four, they are at the hospital. Gavin Stevens has minor injuries. Tyler Ballenbaugh has major injuries. Um, and there's kind of a recounting of what has happened during that event and since. And then there's uh, the big reveal towards the end, which is, again, just a lot, a lot of fun. And to close out the episode today, I wanted to do a couple of cross-literary comparisons, as I often do. I would say that when I think about this particular short story in comparison or in um, alongside the other two short stories from this collection, it's definitely lengthier, drier in that sense. You could tell there's kind of this like meandering prose where you're figuring things out along the way. There's kind of these like little nuggets <laughs> that you get tossed. Um, and you know, that's something that definitely set this one apart from the other two. The other two were like Smoke, for example, very plot driven, I thought. Um, and so there's this kind of like beautiful Faulknerian like fog <laughs> that settles over the text. And that's definitely um, different and perhaps something that will contrast with the next short story in the collection tomorrow. And the short story is called Tomorrow, I should mention. Uh, Light in August, which is a book by William Faulkner. Um, it's sort of the first, it's said to be the first book that he started to develop his stream of consciousness style in. Um, and other short stories around this time arose for Emily. Um, that kind of style, just there's a lot of like darkness right? I mean, it is about a death, it is about very serious adult themes, um, and that's definitely something that he continues to develop in a lot of his different short stories. Uh, not the least of which, Rose for Emily, probably one of the more well-known short stories of his. And I would say that what's very Sherlock Holmes about this um, short story is that Stevens 
actually solves a crime or like figures out something in the short story. Sometimes he's just kind of a a person who sort of reconstructs the story after the fact. Like he's not solving anything, but he's just presenting everything and kind of realizing, you know, in a very again Holmes way that okay, here's how the events passed. But here it's kind of more immediate than that because he's involved in the Inquisition, he's involved in this confrontation, and then he realizes, you know, at the end he kind of like figures out who done it. Um, and in that sense, like, it's different from the other short stories in this collection where he's just presenting the facts. He's actually involved in the story here, and that's um, definitely a distinction. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. Thank you for being patient with my everlasting bronchitis. I've had it for six weeks now and um, continuing to heal, but the voice is in and out, as you can definitely tell. Um, I am thrilled to be continuing along in this mini-series. It's been so, so fun, um, and I hope that you all enjoy it as well and are looking forward to the last three short stories. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.